they've easing the volatility and the upswings and the mood. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing on this merry eve of Christmas celebration. I'm Richard Harris. Your business headlines this morning, <coughs> GDP in the US tops 5% in the third quarter. More new records, the Dow breaks 18,000, an all-time high. Profit-taking in Shanghai knocks 3% off the index. We kick off with a look at the global economy today with Sean Darby of Jefferies. And joining us later on that discussion is Tim Huxley of Wa Kuang Maritime Transport and that very important sector to Hong Kong, shipping. And all the way through, we'll be looking at the five big business news stories of 2014 with guest host Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Richard. Now, Peter, I hear you've been looking at the uh, CPI for, uh, for the last few years. Yes, indeed. And um, as it's Christmas, it's not quite the CPI that you know, the uh, Consumer Price Index. I'm looking at the Christmas Price Index, which yeah. was actually first created in 1984 to measure the cost of buying all the gifts in the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, all the partridges in the pear trees, all the drummers drumming, the lords are leaping and so on, which is a total, in fact, of 364 gifts, if you were to actually give your true and love. And what sort of money of. value? Today, it costs the consumer price index. All those gifts, buying them and renting all the other uh, pipers and so on, would cost you $27,673. Well, you wouldn't want your wife to know that, would you? <laughs> and uh, how much has that gone up over the years? Well, since it was launched in 1984, that is an increase of 119%, so about 2.6% per annum. So pretty well in line with a normalised growth rate, say, for the US. And, and full of very worthwhile gifts, if I may say. Proves economics works, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, the Dow Jones Index yesterday soared past 18,000 for the first time after the US clocked the fastest quarterly growth rate in 11 years. Revised third quarter growth came in at a high 5% after both business and consumers were more active than previously thought. GDP growth for the year is now expected to be comfortably over 3% after growth of just 2.2% in 2013. The release of a flurry of data saw hiring in a much stronger position, with jobs increasing at over an average rate of over 240,000 per month this year, and that's something like 23% more than last year. New home prices were up, uh, although a couple of dipped uh, figures were housing starts and durable goods orders which were below expectations. The Dow rose in response, as we've heard, 0.4% uh, to 18,026, although most other indices were flat on the day. The long bond wobbled and lost about 10 basis points to yield 2.26% as traders looked towards the possibility of inflation and of an increased chance that the Fed would seek to increase rates. Professor Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton Business School, however, echoed the bullishness. It is a year ago predict 18,000 and while luck should have it, uh, here we are just about Christmas and at that level. I still think, as you said, this bull still has room to run, but we are much closer to fair market value, certainly than we've been any time in the last five years. So that means the range of outcomes is also more uncertain. But I like the tailwind that we have from the oil price decline that, of course, we've seen in, in the last three or four months. I think that's going to make for a good 2015 economy, keep interest rates low. I'm not even sure the Fed is going to tighten until way in the autumn. Uh, and that's still a very good climate for, for the stock market. So that's a professor, and he's still positive. The dollar reacted with equal enthusiasm, driving the currency to its highest in more than eight years. 
The US dollar continues to strengthen against the yen, currently trading at 120.7. The euro drifted lower to 122, and the pound was hit by actually a downgrade to the UK third quarter growth uh, and is now trading at $1.55 to the pound. The pound has sunk to 12.03 Hong Kong dollars to the pound. European markets took sucker from the US, believing that high US growth will pull the continent out of deflation. The Euro Stocks Index of 50 large stocks rose 1.2% to 3,192, though broader European indices were out only half that. Professor Siegel now tells us where he thinks the value is. There are sound uh, values in, in Europe. There are an unbelievably sound values in the emerging markets today. Boy, they've been hit. We know Russia, China has come back, but Russia and many of the other currencies. Actually, when people ask me, uh, Jeremy, next three to five years, what sector you think is going to do the best? I don't pick the U.S. stock market. I actually think the emerging markets as a group are going to be the, the best performers. Well, in the short term, talking about the emerging markets, Shanghai had a bad day yesterday, slumping 3% on concerns of the 48% gain in Shanghai this year had gone too too far, too fast. The Chinex small stock index showed a two-day fall to 6.3% following the Chinese regulators' announcement that they were investigating market manipulation. Hong Kong was dragged down 0.3% to 23,334. Back to US interest rates, Chris Rupke, Chief Global Strategist of Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, enjoys the rant. Net-net, we cannot keep getting numbers like these and have the Fed saying not good enough. If they are data dependent, the data are telling them to normalize interest rates. An early start is especially critical because it will take them so long to get rates up to 3% neutral. Almost three years in Bernanke years. Well, we now have a new uh, time factor, Bernanke years. Rupke believes that consumer figures are so strong that the Fed is way behind the game. Here he is with his prediction for 2015. And with growth running above 3% and unemployment expected to keep falling, inflation will be higher two or three years from now. That's economics 101. Rate hikes are coming sooner than you think. Bet on it. Well, we move now from Chris Rupke, who's not a man for sitting on the fence, to Sean Darby, Chief Global Strategist uh, Jeffries, who's sitting on the end of a line. Morning, Sean. Good morning. Uh, how are you this morning? I'm actually quite well, thank you. And what do you think about the figures? Have they made you feel better? Um, I'm not too surprised. I mean, we've had um, a series of indications that the consumer had a lot more um, uh, sort of strengthen going into the end end of the year, particularly as we've seen with gasoline um, uh, prices dropping. And again, uh, you know, unemployment is a lagging indicator. So, you know, that, that the sort of data that we've had has perhaps has been a lot stronger, but actually really underneath, it was already, the trend line growth was already there actually over the last six months. But these consumer growths have figures, have actually been it, it's been seen that the figures actually seem better than they've been coming out. So is it really a surprise that we should see this kind of upgrade at this stage? 
Um, I think the two things I would point out is, one is that, um, you know, the contribution of growth uh, by government within the U.S. GDP has actually been falling. So the quality of growth in the U.S. has actually been a lot better, uh, number one. Number two is that there was an, a great deal of reliance over the last 18 months on the private investment side, side to pick up some of the, uh, the weakness in, in uh, um, consumer spending. So actually the blend of growth at the moment in the U.S. is actually very good. As I said, I think if you strip out um, the health care spending, uh, contribution of growth to uh, U.S. GDP is actually by the government is actually its lowest since 1950. We've also been looking at these job figures picking up, um, which has generally uh, been seen to be a good thing because actually we want people in work, we want them to spend. But generally wage increases have been fairly muted. Do you think this might change the picture? Well, it's always this uh, terrible thing what's the, of the average. And in fact, there's a large part of the U.S. which is experiencing quite decent wage hikes. And certainly in the services sector, uh, whether it's in um, sort of whether you're a nurse or even truck drivers, there's been an uplift in uh, parts of the wages, wages in the economy that's been far faster than the average. What seems to have been much weaker, or the take-up has been in, in, in part-time work, a greater proportion of people are working in, in part-time some of it out actually out of their own choice, and I think that's been where the where, where the drag on the on, on, on the average has been on the, on the low side. Uh, but the net net um, is that you, you you're going to see continue to see the unemployment rate fall over the next three to six months. I say this is lag effects coming through, and I'm I'm, I'm still not sure um, that the Fed is going to be raising rates all too soon compared to your previous speaker. I think they're going to wait really until the economy's red hot and then. Make, uh, make that decision, and that really points towards the end of the year, end of 2015. So, Sean, with, with GDP now revised up to 5%, we've also had some stellar job numbers last month, 321,000 jobs um, created, retail sales up 0.7%. What exactly is it going to take for this data-dependent Fed to actually go and raise interest rates? What, what are they waiting for that's going to get them to put the, pull the trigger? Because it's hard to see these, these numbers getting much better over the coming few months. I think the thing that what the scenario that we've sort of played panned out for clients is it's very similar to the late 1990s when the U.S. really was the only um, anchor of global growth really through the U.S. consumer. At that time, you had Germany, which was still in a, in a pretty difficult position. Uh, Japan was still in deflation. And the emerging markets had just come out of a massive crisis, including Russia at that time, which had defaulted. So the scenario is very similar to what we have today, strong dollar, low inflation, low bond yields. And a, a certain Mr. Alec Green, Greenspan was faced with the same dichotomy as we've seen with the data today. And he kept rates very low. Um, and indeed, that's essentially fueled a very strong stock market. But again, he had the backdrop of very, very low inflation. And that's really what the long end of the bond market is telling you. In fact, uh, the long end of the bond market is saying to us at the moment that the rate hikes, when they do come, will not be that that strong as, uh, as your previous speaker pointed out. Certainly, the little 10-year bonds trading at 2.25. So rates, short rates going to three, I think is still actually um, uh, a, a low probability. Well, Sean, if you could just stay on the line with us for maybe another the five minutes or so we're going to go through peter lewis's top 10 five events of the year after this how are policies formulated how should the government allocate its resources in the budget boost the economy meet housing needs care for the elderly 
or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline 2810-3768. Well, with 5% growth in the U- U.S., maybe we are celebrating. Right, we have Peter Lewis now. Peter's chosen his top uh, five events of the year, and uh, we'll have both him and uh, Sean commentating on it. Um, Peter, first one is market rigging and bank fines. Yeah, but it's been another record year for um, fines that have been dished out by regulators around the world for um, various offences committed by global banks, which range from sort of forex rigging, rigging of the LIBOR benchmark rates, US sanctions busting, money laundering, helping um, Americans evade tax and so on. So in the last six years now, banks have had to pay out $260 billion in fines. It's probably the size of a small country, really. Well, I was going to put that in perspective. That's almost the GDP of Hong Kong. Yeah, um, it's been paid out by by banks for, and and there's still no sign of it uh, ending. And it's more, the more shareholders coming. that have paid it, not the management. It's the shareholders that have that have been affected. I mean, you know, there's been some pretty big ones uh, this year. I mean, Bank of America had to pay out 16 billion dollars relating to the mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities. We saw BNP pay pay out nine billion for. It, it goes on and on, doesn't it? Well, at number four, we've got the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect. Yep, this was finally launched in November to uh, to great fanfare and it's basically a mechanism for international investors to buy Chinese A shares through a Hong Kong broker and and likewise for retail investors in China to be able to buy Hong Kong shares but it all seems to be one way um, it's it's all been northbound into China. Yes, yeah, so what people didn't expect uh, Sean, Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect, is it um, uh, is it a new era or has it been a bit of a damn squib? Um, sort of from my conversation with clients, I think they just didn't have enough time to sort of get all of the legal, trustee and documentation process in place. I think they wanted to buy and participate, but in fact, there's such a great deal of bureaucracy involved in, in trying to set up the type of structure that, that would allow them legally to enter the Asia market. They were sort of prohibited, but uh, I, I don't think it's a damn squib. I think it's a really good long-term theme to be playing out. And if I may add, I, I think that in the next six to nine months, I think the Chinese authorities will open up the government bond market through Shanghai as well, and that really will kick off the whole process, allowing investors northbound to buy into the listed government bonds traded in Shanghai. It does to be an extraordinary opportunity, doesn't it? Uh, of and it's quite rare for stock exchanges to trade uh, almost equally a- across boundaries. But so far, we've seen most of the trade going north, um, and we've got these big discounts, which have been unheard of, between Hong Kong and Shanghai shares for the same shares. Yes, I think it's a bit of a di- dilemma, really, for investors, because I think ultimately they know that the the uh, depth of liquidity will be in China and holding RMB shares will be ultimately, or RMB price shares will ultimately be what the um, the, uh, the trust products, and the, the unit trust products and so forth will want to uh, show. But yes, it's very appealing. And I, I think uh, in the early part of next year, we have a, a pretty good run in the eight share market as those gaps are narrow. Good. Um, right, down at number three is the China slowdown. Of course, the uh, slowdown in China's economy, um, all, all of us uh, highly sophisticated analysts, analysts predicted it at the beginning of the year. 
Right, Peter. Yeah, well, currently the uh, China, China growth is at 7.3%, which many countries in the world would, would love to have as of Q3. But we have to compare that to last year. It was 7.7 last year. And then only back in 2007, we were seeing 14.2% growth. The big driver of that is housing, um, of, of course. Prices now are, are falling in 67 out of the 70 cities tracked um, in, in China. So they're falling about 3.7%. And, and housing is a very big contributor um, to a to, to GDP. Mm, and that's not a game that's going to end quickly. Uh, Sean, China's slowdown, we're now looking at 7.3% after officially looking at 7.5% last year. But many observers figure that the growth is actually a whole lot less um, in the sixes, even uh, with the five handle. What's your thought on that? Yes, I would concur. I, I think <clears throat> some of the, well, what's called the Kachang uh, index is showing really growth at around a modest 4 or 5% really. And certainly uh, some of the other underlying trade data as well is also pointing to that fact. I think um, the key really is, is sort of the inclusivity of the GDP numbers. They have re been recently revised up themselves the way that they've measured it. But I think the trend line is sort of broken down now and we're in that sort of 5 to 6% terminal growth rate, which I think unfortunately means that we are going to have much more subdued top line growth numbers. I don't think there's a, you know, we haven't had a big surprise out of China now for 18 to 24 months on, on the top line. And I think that's really what you have to take into account for the next 12 to 24 months. Okay, uh, coming in at number two is the oil price collapse and the worries that we all had that there was going to be some contagion, that the oil price collapse was affecting Russia and other countries like that, and that will spill over the rest of the world. Was that right, Peter? Well, at the moment, you know, the, the contagion is sort of in some of the emerging market producing countries. I mean, countries like uh, Russia, Nigeria, Venezuela have seen their currencies uh, collapse. And, of course, we've seen a, a huge impact in Russia. We saw on Black Tuesday a couple of weeks ago the ruble fall as much as 20% in just one day. And that was after a 10% fall the day earlier. It, it's recovered about a third of those losses now. But nevertheless, the damage has been done, um, regardless of what happens to the oil prices now, even if it were to move up, once you have a, a, a collapse of that type of speed, there are going to be knock-on effects which will occur in sort of, you know, credit So we reckon 2015 there could be a series of defaults coming out of the woodwork as a result of the oil price fall? Ab absolutely. Certainly amongst some of the US shale producers because they built their business on a huge amount of debt. They, they go into the junk bond markets, they need a lot of financing and they've based their projections on oil around $100 um, a, a barrel. So the revenues that are going to come at this sort of level are not going to be able to support that debt level. Sean, are you, where do you sit on this uh, issue of the oil price? Are you bearish because we may see defaults which may impact growth and sentiment next year or are you bullish because after all in Asia most of the countries are users of oils, not, not exporters? Well, I think one of the, the sort of, if you can track it, is, is some of the work that the IMF has done. And they, they've sort of pointed to a sort of $20 drop in the barrel of oil, boosting essentially EM growth overall by about 1%. So that's certainly for the big upside for China and India. And places for, like the U.S. itself, the more developed economies, it tends to boost growth by around about a half a percent. It's less in the developed world because of the large tax take by governments and that people tend to save part of that gasoline drop. But what was interesting was when we looked at the US, 70% of that uh, gasoline, that's, uh, the savings that gets spent, or the gasoline uh, move that gets spent, actually goes into restaurants. So uh, yeah. it's a great time to be buying those takeaways and those pizza and donut uh, franchises at the moment.
Ah, that's a good tip. Okay, coming in at number one. This is Peter Lewis's number one for the year. Um, the appointment of Janet Yellen as the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve Board and the impact of the Fed this year. Yep, she was appointed back in February this year, the first woman to ever lead the Fed. And according to Forbes, she's the sixth most powerful person in the world in 2014. Now, why have I put this at number one? Because the impact of the Fed and the other world's central banks have been the main driver behind um, what we've seen in equity markets this year. Nearly every sharp move that we've had, sharp rally that we've had in equity markets, and we only have to look at what's happened over the last six days, has come as a result of Fed words or actions or perceived deeds that they, uh, that they might do. And they've expanded their balance sheet now um, from just over a trillion dollars six years ago to about four and a half trillion dollars of assets, all going into mainly the financial markets. I'm just amazed that Janet Yellen is only number six. She's the second most powerful woman in the world, if that helps. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'd, uh, sure, in the Fed, especially in Hong Kong, it has such an impact on, on us because of the uh, link through the currency. What's your view on U.S. interest rates for next year? Well, as I say, I think we're, the, the, the Fed's going to remain lower for longer, and that's been our house view for, for a good 18 months. Um, they, remember, I think that uh, these central banks want real rates to remain negative because they're still in financial repression. They've got to get rid of a lot of government debt, and it's not in their interest to raise the cost of debt. So they want that real rate negative before they start to feel comfortable raising short-term rates. And I still think uh, there's still a bit of a, um, there's still some room for manoeuvre for the Fed. It, as I say, it's got to liquidate that government debt by keeping real rates negative. So I think it's towards the end of next year. So Dame Janet's back. going to be the friend of the stock market by the looks of things. Um, Sean, thank you very much for coming in or Pleasure. speaking to us on Christmas Eve. I wish you a very Merry Christmas and um, have a great holiday. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Tim Huxley's been waiting for us very patiently in the uh, Queensway Government uh, Centre studios. Uh, Tim Huxley, CEO of Wakong Maritime Transport, good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming in on Christmas Eve, especially dressed in a suit. Well, I'm going to work after this. Splendid. So glad somebody is. Um, uh, you've heard a little bit about, the, uh, about what the markets have been going on. Um, your business is, is the shipping business. And could you just tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts? You're, I think we're really looking at bulk carriers oil tankers, containers. Yeah, you can't generalise really about shipping. I mean, the key areas are bulk carriers, which carry cargoes like iron ore, grain, coal, tankers, which carry crude oil and refined products. And then you have the container business, which, of course, is the most uh, obvious side in Hong Kong with our large container terminals. But it's a very fragmented business. It's uh, an awful lot of it is still in private hands. There's not so much that is uh, is listed. Now you must see. I mean, one of the advantages with the logistics sector, and uh, I should actually tell our listeners, it's one of the biggest sectors uh, of the economy in Hong Kong, is that you can see trading flows. Um, is, is that true? How much can you see how the global economy is doing by by your order book? Well, it's uh, it is connected, but at the same time, you can actually quite often get quite a disconnect from it. At the moment, uh, for instance, you've got 
like uh, you've had an increase in iron ore imports into China. But the earnings on your bulk carriers have been abysmal for this year, uh, primarily because that is coming from is traveling shorter distances. The extra production has come out of Australia. But also it's uh, it's been absolutely hamstrung by the fact that we've still got a massive hangover in terms of the supply of ships uh, that were built in ordered in the boom years of 2007, 2008. And bulk carrier side, it's fundamentally there's too many ships. Highly, highly cyclical. What about oil tankers? Because, you know, the man in the street would have thought that oil tankers may not be doing so well at the moment, but I understand it's the opposite. Well, that's quite correct. I mean, when uh, the oil price cratered, uh, everybody thought, well, OK, well, if it's carrying oil, then um, that's going to be affected like oil companies and everybody marked them down. But in actual fact, what you've got is that the cheap oil price, everybody is stocking up. Uh, so there's an enormous amount more oil at sea. So in the case of very large crude carriers, and these are the ships that carry two million barrels of crude oil, these are the ships that are four football pitches long, uh, the earnings on those ships really since the autumn when they were about 25000 a day, uh, on some routes they've been earning over $100,000 a day in the last couple of weeks. So, Tim, with, with, with the window that you have on global trade, we're seeing the price of, of shipping goods around the world falling quite fast. Things like the Baltic Dry Index, I think, are down about 24 days in a row. Yeah. It, what's that telling you about the, the, the state of sort of trade around the world and, and, and sort of, you know, the global economy, do you think? Well, I think uh, the Baltic Dry Index, a lot of that is led by the Cape Size bulk carrier market. And Cape Size bulk carriers are these ships that carry mainly iron ore uh, that can carry nearly 200,000 tonnes. Uh, and I think what's happened is that with the commodity price dropping, iron ore has been dropping uh, equally as dramatically as oil. Uh, and so there's been quite high stocks in the main uh, importer, which is China. Uh, and those stocks, hopefully, they are beginning to decline now as people anticipate that the price might drop further. So beginning of next year, uh, whilst I don't expect 2015 to be a fabulous year for bulk carriers, you might actually begin to see some restocking uh, in the period after after Chinese New Year. So 2015, not so good for bulk carriers, uh, but what about your business or what about shipping in general? How's 2015 shaping out? Um, I think the tanker market will uh, continue to have a bit of a tailwind into the new year. Um, you know, winter is always a good time for tankers. Well, traditionally, it's quite a good time for tankers uh, because your heating oil, uh, the demand for that goes up. Uh, so we're expecting that to uh, maybe carry on through into, into the new year. But bulk carriers overall, I think next year is probably going to look pretty tough. There's quite a lot of new ships being delivered. And unless we see really quite a significant increase in uh, demand around the world, then it's probably going to be another tough year. So it's all supply and demand. Well, Tim, thank you very much for coming in on your way to work. I wish you a very good day and a very good Christmas. And to you. Thank you. And just to finish off today, we have the markets opening. Here we are on Christmas Eve. Australia, as you may imagine, is uh, doing almost nothing. Uh, uh, index level is 5,351. The Nikkei is actually up 1%. Reacting to the news in Wall Street at 17,824. And the sole Cosby is also up a fraction at 1,939. Well, Peter, thank you very much for coming in. I wish you a very good Christmas and hopefully we'll be seeing you next week. Yes, I think, New Year's Eve. And, and New Year. Um, just so it remains to say thank you very much for listening uh, to Welcome to Money for Nothing. And we wish you and your families a very happy Christmas. And uh, finish off with the weather, mainly cloudy, sunny intervals in the afternoon with a maximum temperature of around 20 degrees, moderate northeasterly winds. The current temperature at the Hong Kong Observatory is 17 degrees and the relative humidity is 81%.
And now Samantha Butler with the news. President Obama has welcomed the announcement by Sony that it'll now be releasing its controversial comedy The Interview in a limited number of U.S. cinemas on Christmas Day. The president had earlier criticized the company for cancelling the film about a plot to assassinate the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un after Sony was targeted by a cyber attack. From Los Angeles, here's the BBC's Alistair Leithhead. Sony Pictures confirmed the film would have a limited theatrical release in the U.S. on Christmas Day. That means independent and art house cinemas who wanted to show the film all along. Sony said it only pulled the film because the big multiplex theatre companies refused to screen it on safety grounds and said it was continuing efforts so the movie reaches the largest possible audience. The film's producer Seth Rogen tweeted, The people have spoken, freedom has prevailed. A Canadian porn actor who killed a Chinese student has been found guilty of murder. Luca Magnotta admitted to the killing in 2012 but pleaded not guilty on grounds of mental illness. The BBC's Lee Carter reports from Toronto. It took jurors more than a week to reach their verdict, but in the end they determined that Luca Magnotta's crimes were premeditated. The murder and dismemberment of the 33-year-old university student Lin Jun in May 2012 shocked even seasoned officers from Montreal's homicide squad. Mr Magnotta filmed part of his crime and posted the video on the internet. He then sent Lin Jun's body parts in the post to, among others, the Canadian Prime Minister. Mr Magnotta then fled Canada and after an international manhunt was arrested at an internet cafe in Berlin. The military chiefs of Pakistan and Afghanistan